And we're live. Happy Thursday, everybody. Happy Thursday. Great to be here with you all. We have a very special conversation. I've been waiting for this one for a while. None other than my dear friend, Abud Cohen, who is one of the remaining 840 Samaritans alive today. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into who the Samaritans are, who mm -hmm. Abud Cohen is. Um, it's going to be a conversation between him and I, but we will take it to audience questions <laughs> as always. So stay tuned for that. Before we get started, a quick shout out to our Patreon visionary members. We have Trivium Energy, PTYLTD, SOG Cannabis, Max Marine, Kevin Posner, Adam Becker, Maya, Kimberly, and our one and only champion member, Raja. That list is getting longer to say, and I'm pleased, that's that that's, and I'm pleased that that's the case. Exactly. Um, okay, look, Mabud, let's get started. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Uh, I guess let's start with who are the Samaritans? Sure. So I think if you ask anyone uh, on the street in uh, like around the world, America, Europe, especially these kind of regions, if, have you ever heard about the word Samaritan? They would probably say, oh, yeah, like the good Samaritan, you know, and usually they mean by that the guy or like this random stranger who helps another person on the street uh, randomly that he doesn't know. So they say, oh, it's a good Samaritan act. But 99.9999% of those people who would know about that term, they also probably never heard about what's behind the, the story, the real story of this good Samaritan. And really what's behind the story is this is a story by, uh, like it, it mentioned in the Bible, Jesus talks about it, uh, or like J Jesus gives like a parable about a Samaritan who helped an injured Jewish uh, person on the street or, or on the way from Jericho to Jerusalem. And he used the example of the Samaritan because 2,000 years ago, the Samaritans and the Jews, well, 3,000 years ago, the Samaritans and the Jews were split from one Israelite kingdom to two, to kingdom, two kingdoms, the one in the north, the one in the south, Samaria and Judea, and they often fought each other. Um, so Jesus used this example as, hey, Here's a Samaritan who actually helped a Jewish person who, who they were enemies anyway, but he helped him anyway. So today, um, you, this, this term is used, like I said, for anyone who is uh, who helps a person on the street uh, and also for even in laws in the court that are called the Good Samaritan Law, where if you like injure someone accidentally, if you wanted to help him, who he was already injured, but you made his uh, situation worse, they will protect you in the in the court um, by the Samar Good Samaritan law. But really, we consider ourselves. Sometimes people ask us, "So, so what are you? Are you a Muslim? Are you a Samaritan? Your name is uh, Abdullah, but your last name is Cohen. What are you?" So we are not Muslims, and we are not um, Jewish. We're not Christian. Um, although sometimes I get asked this question, "Are you Jewish?" And it kind of intrigues me because then what do you mean by Jewish? Because today the word Jewish is given to anyone who kind of believes in the Torah or her mother is Jewish, you know, although we get to ask the question again, who, what is it, who is Jewish or who is not? So I think the best way to define Samaritans is that we believe we are descendants of the northern kingdom of Israel that existed 3,000 years ago after the Israelites split. There were what we believe there were like 10 tribes who remained in the northern northern tribe was that was called the kingdom of Israel, later called Samaria. And there was two tribes 
and a half that were that went to the to the south, which were the kingdom of uh, the tribe of Judah, Benjamin, and also half of the tribe of Levi. This is why it was called the kingdom of Judah because the biggest tribes were, uh, or the like, the majority was from the tribe of Judah. Now, there were there like the term Samaritan comes from Shomer Shomrim. We, we believe we're like the, like the keep keepers. You can say Shomrim means keepers in the in the in the uh, in Hebrew, and we also believe we are descendants. What remained of the Samaritans today, we are from the tribe of. Ephraim, Menashe, who were the sons of Joseph, and uh, Levi. Like I'm, my last name is Cohen, so I'm from considered from Levi, the Levi tribe. Now we will not dive deep, deep into why the split happened, but I do think it's important to touch on it, on it a little bit, um, and at least in our perspective, because in the Jewish world, especially in the Orthodox world, they do not believe that we Samaritans are really Israelites. Okay. They believe that we were some kind of a where well well the Assyrians controlled the the north um, around two thousand years ago or something like that. They so nations used to have this method of when they want to weaken the nation uh, that is inside the land, they they would necessarily like just take the higher status people, the higher how do you say um, like hierarchy in the in the top hierarchy of the, of society they would take them out and then then bring them like replace them with people from outside uh, you can read about it the assyrian con- conquering uh, the northern uh, tribes of israel so so they say there were 27000 that were exiled from that time and we believe 20, 27000 is a really small number compared to the 1 million and a half samaritans that existed after the split of the israelites happened and the split happened really because uh, we, what we believe was differences in, it started really with differences between who should be the high priest. So there was Uzi and Eli. Uzi was um, really in the northern tribes and Eli saw that Uzi was not fit for uh, the position to be a high priest. So he eventually, um, he, like Eli eventually said, okay, I'm not, I don't want anything to do with it. I want to take my own kind of temple, Mishkan, and built it elsewhere other than Mount Gerizim, which was against the Samaritan belief or the Northern Israelites belief. We believe that from the beginning, when Joshua entered the land, the, he built the Mishkan or the, the, the temple of Moses on Har Gerizim, really the first year when the Israelites entered the Holy Land. Six stood on Mount Gerizim, six stood on Mount Ebal. This is mentioned in both the Samaritan and Jewish Torah. And the ones who are on Mount Gerizim, each of them representing each tribe, Shemun, Levi, Yehuda, Shishkar, and then like Zebul and Dan, spread the ones on Mount Gerizim, pronounce the blessings. The ones on Mount Ebal, pronounce the cursings. And that's, like I said, Eli and Uzi, they were like split, split. And now we have two beliefs. We have the same Torah, but we have kind of differences between where should the temple be built. And then eventually we have changes in the Torah. Um, now, we will not dive deep into where or why. I mean, we can soon, but like, let's begin by just reminding you that there are some differences between the Samaritan Torah and the Jewish Torah. Almost 6,000 small differences, 30 of which are uh, important differences. When I say 6,000 differences, you should know that we Samaritans have, we still use the ancient Hebrew, um, which is kind of like the oldest version that is used really in the world today. 
it's not necessarily what the Israelites have used. It has evolved a little bit. It's known as also Paleo-Hebrew, which some connected to Phoenician uh, or Aramaic. And the Jewish people today, they use Assyrian Hebrew, which they started using when, if you heard about Azrei Asofer, one of the Jewish rabbis, he gave them to the Jewish people to the, the Assyrian Hebrew to use and said, and left the ancient Hebrew for like what he said, the Kutim, or what is another rabbi who said the Kutim. So Kutim means the, the people who came from Kuta, Iraq. That's where some people believe the Samaritans uh, like originally are from, right? So yeah, we believe that 3000 years ago, we were, um, well, not we, but like researchers also believe that their Samaritans number were about a million and a half. And eventually we were not as much exiled as the Jewish people. We didn't have a Roman exile. We didn't have pretty much a Babylonian exile. We stayed in the land. We have we had small exiles here, here and there, but we mainly stayed in the land. And that meant that we faced many nations that came to control the land. And we fell under many horrible uh, conquerors, especially the Byzantine, Byzantines. They were not really friendly with the Samaritans. We... Uh, Kind of did three revolutions against them. This revolution was led by a leader whose name is Baba Rabba, Samaritan leader, Baba Rabba. He led this revolution three times. And then the third, the first one and two were pretty successful. They kind of showed the Byzantines the power and like the, the like the willingness of the Samaritans to stay on Mount Gerizim because that's really the main reason. They didn't want to leave Mount Gerizim. It's so holy for them. It's like as much as Jerusalem is for the Jewish people. And the third revolution kind of were the hardest on the Samaritans and killed over half of the population. And eventually the population declined, declined, declined. Conversion to other religions happened. Maybe other exiles happened. And eventually our numbers a hundred years ago, uh, there was a uh, Western a research, a researcher from America who came and he uh, counted how many Samaritans were there at that time, how many males, how many females. There was He came at a Passover ceremony, so he also counted how many sheep. And we had like six sheep at that time and 140 Samaritans uh, doing the Passover ceremony in 1917, I believe. 149 even, 147, if I'm correct. His correct research. I forgot the name of that researcher. but um, So that's really one of the lowest recorded numbers of the Samaritans. And we don't know if there are, if there are any around the world simply because... No one came to us and told us, hey, we are Samaritans. We have the Torah. We have ancient Hebrew. We believe in Mount Gerizim. You see? So I think this would be like briefly a little bit about our origins. Hope that kind of gives you a, a tip of the rope to start from there. Yeah, uh, fascinating stuff. And I actually just today doing some research for, you know, before conversation, I, I discovered mm -hmm. the origins of the Good Samaritan. I found ah. it to be to be fascinating. Um, <laughs> I want to talk to you more about your, your personal identity and, and the identities mm -hmm. of Samaritans. So there's an estimated 840 some, somewhat. Uh, today there is 840. Yeah. So today, after a hundred years of 1917, we increased from 147 to 840. Uh. Um, which I believe is a pretty nice like increase. A, a great comeback. Yep. Yeah. Although the number is increasing slowly now, slower than before. This is because families are bringing like maybe two or three children, not more. So, 
So I do want to talk to you about population numbers, but so maybe we'll get to that after identity. Sure. So there's currently two distinct groups of Samaritans, right? One lives right. in Hulon, which is a city next to Tel Aviv, mm -hmm. and the other live in Mount Gerizim, which is where you live. True. So basically around 1930, there was a family that lived in Nablus. There was like, all, all of the families lived, lived in Nablus. All the Samaritans lived in Nablus up to 1930, 1935. Uh, the economic situation forced us to uh, find some, you know, jobs, like whether if it's uh, from Yaffa or Haifa or like all, all around the, the Holy Land. And eventually one family found a job in Yaffa. They moved there and slowly another family saw, saw that they, that family is, you know, better off living there a little bit because financially it's much better than Shechem where the Samaritans live. So now we kind of have those people who are living there that are doing pretty good over there. And slowly Yitzhak Ben Zvi, um, who was like, who was the prime minister at that time, he was fascinated by the Samaritans and he even wrote a book about us that you can check out. Search, I don't know what the exact book, but search for Yitzhak Ben Zvi, Samaritans in Shomronim in Hebrew. I don't think it was translated to English yet. Maybe. And he eventually, um, you know, he visited the Samaritans. He visited the high priest over there. Uh, I believe 1950 that, that happened, something like that. I'm not sure about the numbers. Should check them. But eventually he gave them the Israeli ID uh, that really, really helped push, um, you know, their financial status, their ability to go freely from Har regime to Har back from Cholon. Eventually, he helped us also. He helped the Samaritans who lived in Yaffa uh, buy lands in Cholon to kind of like even sell a little bit closer to the mountain, but also like have their own community there. And uh, there was still Samaritans living in um, Shechem in Nablus. And eventually, we the Samaritans who lived in Nablus moved from Nablus to Har Gerizim to the top of Mount Gerizim because they used to live. They used to only go to Har Gerizim when there were like festivals and ceremonies and holidays. It was a really was it was a super important place, but we never lived there. I mean, Samaritans did live there. There was up to ten thousand people, uh, 10,000 10, Samaritans living there uh, two thousand years ago in the Hellenistic period. Even uh, that was like a thousand five hundred years ago, but. Up to uh, uh, like 60 years ago, there was no one living on Hargrizim. So eventually, we have the two groups meeting today only on ceremonies and holidays. At some points, the Samaritans in Nablus were not allowed to visit the ones in Tel Aviv because they didn't have the Israeli ID. And they asked, I believe, the prime minister or like the Israeli government if they could have the Israeli ID because that would help them financially, that would help them. Uh, also meet their relatives. I have, for example, two relatives. I have two aunts that live there. Um, and the ones who were in Mount in Cholon, in Tel Aviv, they were at some point, like I think four years or three years, they were not allowed to come to Hagrizim. And that was super hard for them. Imagine being Jewish and not being able to access uh, the Western Wall, for example, right? So that was really hard for them. So eventually they were freed. And now... Samaritans are considered like, like especially like the ones who live on Har Gruzim, like me. Uh, we have like a lot of freedom to go all over the Palestinian cities and the Israeli cities, and even in Jordan. We I have Israeli passport, Palestinian ID, Jordanian passport. I have the three. Some have, I believe, some can have four now because they married Ukrainians. Did that work? Maybe. Mm, interesting. 
So, so, so just for some clarity, Har Gerizim, and for those who don't know, Har means mountain in Hebrew, perhaps right. Right? Arabic as well. Is that is that in Har Jebel Jerzim in Arabic? Yeah. Okay. Jerzim is this kind of sounds the same. Yeah. So that would be what Jerusalem is to us. Har Har Gerizim mm-hmm. would be to Samaritans. Yes. And what do in, you? In what I mean by religious, that? In terms of its religious significance. Yes, that's one. And also in terms of the stories that happened in the Torah. Mm-hmm. For example, when uh, God told Abraham in Genesis that go to the mountain that I will sh- show you. Um, in ancient Hebrew, we say, uh, go to the mountain, to one of the mountains that I will show you. We believe that this was Mount Gerizim. And when Jacob, the prophet Jacob, came to a place called Kiryat Luza, he slept on one of the rocks over there, and he had a dream. He had a vision of a ladder, famous known story of the ladder touching the, from earth to the sky. And he woke up from the dream, and he said, which means this must be the house of God. This must be the gates of heaven. So these are like two other names that we cho- we use for Mount Gerizim. And we have other stories that really... Uh, signifies Mount Gerizim and why it's really important. So we have like 12 names also for Mount Gerizim. And by the way, Mount Gerizim, it's interpreted the word Gerizim is interpreted by many researchers and many people to be the mountain of commandments. That's what Hegzarim mean. But it's just really kind of the same context. Hegzarim, Gerizim, it means the mountain of commandments. So that's also one of the main differences of the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments what is the first and the second one in the Jewish um, uh, Torah? As uh, so the Jewish Ten Commandments, it's the first one is "I am the Lord your God." The second one is "You shall have no other God before me." I mean, that's what I believe in the Jewish world. They're interpreted as two separate ones, but in the community Samaritan traditions, it's considered as the one and the same. "I am the Lord your God." You shall have no other God before me is considered the same. So, um, for us. We have this, you might think we have nine, but we actually have a 10th commandment, which is to talk about, which is talks about, which talks about Mount Gerizim, uh, holiness of Mount Gerizim yes. and the commandment to build an altar on Mount Gerizim. Interesting. And, yes. And there's also a, ten, a verse that says, you shall put the blessings on Mount Gerizim and the curses on Mount Ebal. This is mentioned in both Samaritan version of the Torah and the Masoretic uh, text, which is the Jewish version of the Torah. So I, I want to go a little bit deeper in into identity. So I, as you mentioned, all Samaritans today have an Israeli citizenship, whether whether living in Hulon or Hargrizim, there's Israeli citizenships. Are mm-hmm. there still differences, though, in how both groups of Samaritans identify because of where they live, one being Israel proper, the other being the West Bank? Hmm. So... I think this is a common question I get asked where, whether like, do you feel you're Israeli more or you're Palestinian more being li- you know, having That's lived what I'm in getting Minneapolis, at, yeah. right? So you should really, first of all, remember that Samaritans who live in Nablus or like on Hargrizim, I say Nablus because it's kind of considered part of Nablus because it's five minutes away. So the ones who live in Hargrizim, like me, we interacted with the Palestinians throughout our years more. 
naturally because we're closer we go to their schools we go to we have many friends i go to tinopolis almost every day my uh like i have really really good friends uh who, who live there so we are exposed to their culture more we are exposed to we are invited to their uh parties and ceremonies often but also we are also we also go to uh, work in Israel. We have a lot of Israeli friends. I'm talking about the Samaritans who live in Har Grazim. So we're also affected by the Israeli um, culture, but not as much as the Palestinian Palestinian culture, I would say, because we are, like I said, closer. So going back to the Israeli uh, to the Samaritans who live in Israel, I wanted to say the Israeli Samaritans. Although again, it's it's arguable to call them the Israeli Samaritans. Some people might call them that. Um, they are affected more by the Israeli culture, obviously, and they learn Hebrew. They speak Hebrew as a first language. By the way, we speak Arabic. The ones on Haragruzim, we speak Arabic as a first language. We don't use ancient Hebrew in our daily life, only in the uh, religious ceremonies and holidays. So the ones who are in Mount, who are in Cholon in in Israel, they use uh, they use Hebrew. They go to Israeli schools. They some even is serve as like governmental service in the IDF. And, you know, it's mandatory. The ones who are on Harig regime, even though, you know, there's, if you have the Israeli ID, pretty much you have to go to the, to, the, to, to, go to the IDF. But the ones who are on Harig regime, we do not go to the IDF for some reasons that you might understand because it's really complicated. And we really, we really want to form a bridge of peace between the two nations. We don't feel like we have to kind of like root for this, country or root for this country we're very very small and at some points we're you know we have to admit we're selfish we're a selfish community that wants to survive and we and if this nation gives us benefits naturally not only about benefits of course we have historical roots with the jewish people to to this land that's of course going to give us more connection to the jewish people but also with the palestinians because well we lived in nablus with the palestinians for at least a thousand years or a thousand four hundred years or something like that. Um, so we have their food. So we are very much blended in both nations to the point where I can tell you that we are both Palestinians and Israelis and neither at the same time. I mean, I don't know if you could catch that, what I mean by that, but if I can give a few words, what do I mean by neither? It's just that we don't forget that we're Samaritans also. Like we grow up living in both nations i go both from a palestinian city to an israeli city in like just sometimes in 15 minutes like I, from nablus to ariel which is an israeli city uh settlement it's um it's becoming a city by the way it's really big in ariel maybe you saw it um it's uh like 15 minutes only so we have a switch of the world just like that and some people just don't realize how close are we and how how blended are we to both nations to the point where we really can't say that we're only this or only that you see uh i can really go on and talk about the difference so i I find that fascinating is that is that a common sentiment among samaritans that they really view themselves as one's position to help be the bridge between israelis and palestinians did they assume the role of of peacemaker in, in 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 how they view the conflict here's the thing i i i don't know if we assume the role but the role is sometimes forced upon us and i would say not only forced but we also appreciate being able to do it because 
for example, if you come to pass to the Passover ceremony, which is like the only sacrifice, uh, the animal sacrifice that we do throughout the year, because there is no Mishkan, but the Passover ceremony doesn't require. So we invite, you know, like important people from both nations, like the Palestinian leaders and the Israeli leaders, we invite them to attend because it's like a historical ceremony and, you know, people want to get along and watch it. So this is one of the only ceremonies in the Holy Land where you can see both both Palestinians and Israelis just uh, watching this really Mm -hmm. ancient ceremony together that they kind of might interact. And and the the place itself, Hargrizim, is politically uh, accessible for both Israelis and Palestinians. So if you come as an Israeli and you see a Palestinian uh, car, like Israeli uh, Palestinian license plate, don't be surprised. You're actually allowed also to be here and he's allowed to be here without any problems at all because it's one of the few places where they're con- it's considered area B because it's really, I think it's because there's no borders. There's too close, too complicated to cut it out, you know, something like that. Um, we have... You know, so you come here and you would see Israelis and Palestinians buying from the same store. We have a store here that sells like also alcohol. So a lot of Palestinians come to buy alcohol uh, from Nablus because they want to like just make a shortcut, not to go to Tulkarin. Instead of 50 minutes, boom, go to the Samaritans, they tell you. And we even have a, a, a mail that kind of brings the speediness of Israeli mail to the Palestinians. Because we can do that. We can bring Israeli mail and we can bring it to the Palestinian cities. So it's a cool uh, project my brother started, actually. Um, and it's working pretty well. So you can see we are a link. We, you can say we are a bridge. Is it a bridge of peace? You can say yes. You can you can definitely say yes. It's A lot of people ask me, hey, we have this workshop, but we heard that we can bring Palestinians and Israelis to your place. You see, Palestinians cannot access Israeli cities and vice versa. So... Hargrizim is definitely a bridge of peace, place that you can uh, bring together. Both. I, I, I love hearing that. Yeah. Is the is there like a specific solution that is commonly accepted among the Samaritans? Like, would they prefer a one-state solution or two-state solution? Are there conversations of this? There are not as much as you might think, but hmm, I think that. I don't. I never heard about a one-state solution uh, by a Samaritan. I I might have, but I, if I had to guess, we would. I don't think a one-state solution. Like I personally don't know if a one-state solution is possible because I know how Israelis are attached to their land, and I know how Palestinians are attached to their land. And if you tell them, "Hey, would you like just? How about we give you all the benefits that we have, but let's just." call it israel and let's just let's just you know leave the palestinian identity and just leave it you know let's just 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 call it one state solution we're friends but let's just call it one state solution i don't think that's going to happen and the reason is because i lived and i studied with in israel in palestinian schools for many years they grow up also it's sometimes easy to take for granted how much a person like your enemy also loves his land i mean i said enemy because you know, there might be some people who consider yeah. the other side enemies and they just don't know that, hey, as much as you love your land, he, the guy over there also loves his land. So he's not willing to kind of easily, you know, even if you represent historical facts from each, each sides, you're always going to be biased towards your your nation. And, you know, growing up there, I just realized that I don't think one state solution is 
is that easy to make. It might be if there are some ways that we can make both people happy and not lose their identity and kind of respect both people's hist history and culture. Um, a two-state solution is also not, I can imagine, not that easy to make. But if you look at it closely, we kind of have it going on, although not officially. We do have Palestinian cities. We do have Israeli cities. There's no specific 100% borders. But then we bring up the settlement problem um, that we, you know, like people will tell you, but what about the settlements? So I, like, I really don't have an exact opinion about the settlements, but I would say that we have a settlement like near us here on Har Bracha. It's like just a kilometer away. There are some pretty nice... Uh, people over there I have like really good friends there and we have some benefits of like uh, like having medical centers although the question would be it's expanding at a pretty fast rate so if it reaches our village right that's like where we have to know how are we going to be blending in with that community they're going to get mm. closer we're I don't think there is a lot of information on us in that settlement but so you can see why it's right. So, do do you identify as Palestinian? Do I do I identify as Palestinian? Like, do you consider yourself to be a Palestinian Samaritan? Like, do I consider that... myself to be a Palestinian Samaritan? Well, I I've, obviously I've been asked this question before, but I just like to ask myself again and see what I feel about this question. Right? Um, it could change from day to day. <laughs> it can change, and it could. It could just also, I just like to ask myself again to just give you a really authentic answer. And Appreciate now that. that I look on the left side of my, of my, I think I have it here, I have a Palestinian ID. Does that make me a Palestinian? If you say no, and you say like technical things don't matter, what do you feel inside? I say that I have studied the Palestinian history. It's in school. And it doesn't matter if you believe it's right or wrong. It's just that I have some attachment to it. Um, I have a lot of Palestinian friends, like I said. Their food is amazing. And and I've studied with what they teach at schools. So I have I do have I do have Palestinian, not ethnically, you can't say I'm ethnically Palestinian. I mean DNA wise, maybe if you want to go that far into ethnicity ethnicity, we're not Palestinians. But here's the thing. I have a question for you, Adar. Um, are, did, did you make Aliyah? Mm -hmm. Where from? Yeah. New Jersey. So are you American? I consider myself American, but my I consider myself to be Israeli-American. Okay, mm -hmm. interesting. So what made you American? Was it because you were born there or was it because, right? So, yeah, probably I was bo yeah, born there, lived there for a little more than half my life, yeah. Sure, but that's what I, what happened with me. I lived in Naples, and people called it Palestine. It doesn't matter what is officially called. Like that's what people don't get. One time I was in a, um, I was my my documentary was viewed in New York. You can search for it, Samaritan, uh, Samaritan, two thousand eight on YouTube, or search for Abud Cohen if you want to watch it. And at some point in the film, I say uh, that we lived with the many nations, including. Uh, and I say, in, including in Palestine. Now, I sometimes say Israel. I sometimes say Palestine. Sometimes it depends on who I'm talking with. Sometimes I just want to get a, a point out. You know, it doesn't really matter. What do I call it? Although some people say it does matter. Some people don't like when I say Palestine. And apparently one of the audience who was watching it, he heard that I say, said Palestine. And after the movie, he said, like, excuse me, um, like, really nice movie. But you do know, like, 
Like there's no such thing called Palestine. The Romans called it Palestine. So do they could like be against the Jews. And then there was a pro-Palestinian who was next to me and they went on each other, you know? And I was like, <laughs> guys, relax. You know, we're here to make peace or something like that. But like, I don't want to go off course a little bit. I just want to give a small example that we, you can't say we're, we can't say we're completely Palestinian Americans. You just can't say that 100%. Um, because we we have also a huge connection with the Jewish people in Israel, and that may, makes us also Israeli Israelis, and we have the Israeli ID, and we work in Israel, and we have, like I said, many Israeli friends. So we're like Palestinian Israeli Samaritans, maybe something like that. You see, I, even I can get come up with a hundred percent. I like that Palestinian Israeli Samaritans. It works. That, right. That's uh, taking the role of peacemaker. Right, right. If you have to look for an identity somewhere, like maybe that that's what I can come up with. But we, we have, like like I said, we are blended with both worlds so much that we can't say we're 100% this and 100% that. Interesting. And would you, would you say that the reason why the national identity, you're saying it exists to an extent, but it seems like Samaritans have a less strong sense of a Palestinian national identity than most other inhabitants of the West Bank. Hmm. And is that because potentially you've you've already had a very strong and historic Samaritan identity that mm-hmm. the, the there was less room for a strong sense of Palestinian nationalism to develop? Do, do you think it has something to do with that? I think it probably does, but if you look at it also from the other side. The Samaritan identity, like us being Samaritans, again, what does it mean? What does the word Samaritan mean? It means keepers. And we are very, very attached to the Samaritan religion, the Samaritan story, the history, especially, I believe, when you're that much of a minority. When you're when you're a very small minority, I think people don't realize how much you can be, like, just, uh, what's the right word? Um, like, you're just very... You want to keep this kind of link how, alive, it, right? how it solidifies and strengthens your identity when you're hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people take that for granted. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, to answer your questions, what makes us really not, what makes us not blend maybe it was just be us being a minority. And, and sometimes some people, I, I remember this question um, in school that a, not a question, but it's just a statement by a teacher who said to, uh, to the students, you know, guys, there's no differences between Samaritans and and Muslims. And there was this one student who said, you're right. Yeah, there's no differences between Samaritans and Muslims. You see what he did there? Like playing with words. He's saying like <laughs> just about just talking about it kind of implies there is a difference. Um, so being a minority over there kind of also reminds you like you're in a sense some there's some differences between you and the other communities although sometimes i forget i'm a samaritan i'm reminded when i'm like when i'm about to enter a restaurant or something there's like some kosher rules or some um or like some samaritan guys i would assume they are reminded when if they're single and they find this uh women whom they might like love or like or man um they might be reminded oh i'm a samaritan and she has to convert if i want to marry her so Mm. so what, what language did you grow up speaking? We speak Arabic 
in Hargrizim and uh, the ones who live in Cholon, they speak Hebrew. We speak Arabic because, you know, like there are some Jewish people who were like living in or were exiled in Europe and a lot in America. They started speaking in whatever country they grew up in, right? So they speak French if they lived in France, German or Germany, they live in Germany and all those examples. Uh, but they didn't forget their Hebrew, right? They can still speak, they can read Hebrew, even though their first language might be German or French or or Spanish or anything like that. So that's what happened with the Samaritans, really. We just started speaking he- Arabic because of how long we lived in Shechem, in Nablus. And, um, and we can even see that with the Samaritans who live in Cholon now. Cholon, they yeah. lived for uh, in Israeli city, cities long enough that they, they, they didn't lose their Arabic even. They didn't lose their Hebrew. Uh, ancient Hebrew, but they start speaking uh, started speaking uh, a modern Hebrew. So, so do do you speak modern Hebrew? Yeah, yeah, I, I speak pretty fluent modern Hebrew. I mean, so that I you just learned as as more so as an adult. Yeah, I personally learned it because I was an English teacher for Israeli students, so uh, that okay. kind of made it much better. But you okay. also learn it as you you know go to Israeli cities. You have like I said, Samaritans. Neighbor uh, relatives living there, so you go there, you interact with them, so you, your Hebrew naturally gets yeah, better. Right. So I guess that uh, responds to Rashi's question. Rashi's an audience member that that asked, "How is your English so perfect?" So you were an English teacher, makes sense. Uh, yeah, that's that's one thing. But I like I used to watch um, a lot of American cartoons when I was a kid. Mm. I think well, that's, that's how it started. And yeah, and I'm a tour guide, so a lot of chats with foreign people, and then eventually I started thinking in English. So I think my Arabic needs to be repolished. Some fine tuning. Yeah. <laughs> we can work on it. Is there is there any difference in terms of like dialect, slang, or accent between the Arabic that you speak and Arabic that other Palestinians speak? I know that there's different ah. accents from city to city, so. Yeah, cool question. There is actually there is slight differences, although they can they can sometimes make you feel um, a little bit embarrassed because <laughs> okay, because like um, so they call our accent the Samaritan accent of Arabic. They call it the Nabulsi accent, Arabic Nabulsi. They say so. For example, instead of Anna, which means me, they say Ani. Ironically, this is closer to Hebrew because in Hebrew I mean, you say yeah. ani, but in Arab, but in the Samaritan or like in the Nablusian ones, only Samaritans use it. Some families in Nablus still use it, but only Samaritans have kept this Nablusian accent. So any achi, um, what words would like other like other words I can give would be like um, like if you want to say why 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 did you do that, you can say lish hek in the Nablusian accent today, but you would say Lesh Heke in the Samaritan Hebrew. So they would kind of take make fun of us in some terms because it sounds like a little bit too nice or like a little bit too, uh, how can I say, not childish, but like too light, like a language that is too fluffy, you know? Interesting. So, but although we speak together, we just forget about it. When we as Samaritans, when right. we speak together, we just speak that our own Samaritan Arabic. But when we talk with the Samaritans in uh, with the Nablusians, it's more respectful to switch accents. Do so you do it subconsciously? Mm. So. Yeah, the di- the different dialects of Arabic is is fascinating. Yeah, I, I guess I, I see I see it firsthand in English how there's such a diverse, so much diversity within one, one language. But when I was recently in Dubai, I met with a Palestinian friend there, 
and he told me that the Emiratis consider Palestinian Arabic to be sissy-like. Yeah, like that's the thing. And sissy-like, <laughs> and, and that some words are different, like Palestinian Arabic uses some Aramaic. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but, yeah definitely. I can see cool. some, some examples like that. What, um, are, so you mentioned you, you celebrate Passover. Right. But it's not during the Jewish Passover. It's a few weeks later. I, I remember this because you and I met in person once. Mm -hmm. And you weren't e eating bread then because it was Samaritan Passover. Right. But it wasn't right. during our Passover. Yeah, you're right. So, so we, we have it. Sometimes it's different dates. Yeah. Is it based off a different calendar? And in general, are the Samaritan, like, which holidays are aligned? Do you have any holidays that are uniquely Samaritan that no one else celebrates? Um. So we have the Torah. So we have the first five books only. And that means we celebrate the festivals mentioned in the Torah. So that includes Rosh Hashanah uh, uh, and also the first day of the of the year. So we have our own calendar. This year is 3,659 uh, since the Israelites' entry to the Holy Land. So that's our uh, calendar today. And we have the Passover ceremony 14 days after the first uh, day. Then we have we start counting 50 days after the Shabbat. So Meocher to Shabbat, they say. So in Judaism, that's the difference. They start counting from the day of the Passover, or like one day of the Passover. We start counting from the Shabbat after the Passover. So that makes some days difference already. So we have count 50 days for the Shavuot festival, where we have also a pilgrimage. Uh, we have three three pilgrimage each year, three pilgrimages. And uh, we don't have Hanukkah and Purim, by the way. Uh, we do have uh, Yom Kippur fasting day, and we have the Sukkot festival. We also have Rosh Hashanah festival, which is the seventh month of uh, the year. So a lot of people really don't realize how similar we are and how similar the, our festivals are. Although the the way that we celebrate them might be different. Have you ever seen a Samaritan Sukkah? Uh, I actually just today on my uh, little... Uh, research to get prepared, but we could we okay. could show a picture. Sure, I you, can share have uh, one? some. I think, uh, yeah, I do, I do. You can share this one. Let me share it here. Um, there we go. Do you see it? So, this one was um, cool. at um, my grandfather's. You can wow. see some people make different. Um, shapes the idea is or the, the most important thing is to put the lemons and the etrogs and the pomegranates and other than that you can do whatever like shape or or anything you you want and we sit under oh look at that i think that's a bell some people right. take it to extreme some people may even made the whatsapp logo they thought it was interesting so there's like i don't know what that is i think it's palestine <laughs> israel brazilian flag but it's really amazing to to make it brings the family together and it smells incredible too it's really good it's a really good smell we don't throw anything away actually uh just after seven days we make juice out of what we can make juice out of and even uh like for example the the one in the middle is called the etrog we make some really delicious jam from it uh with sugar so yeah it's pretty amazing it's one of my well, favorite festivals if you decide to invite me to uh, the next Samaritan Sukkot, um, you're more than welcome. It's uh, in October, so yeah. Okay, come on. Although, up. if one fruit falls on you, 
you're considered lucky and you might get a pride. That's one of the superstitions. <laughs> Interesting. I like so, to think that I'm like pretty high in luck. Like that's one of my uh, better. Well, you don't want the, the middle fruit to fall on you because that's pretty heavy. Because one time I was sleeping and I heard something crash. Apparently, the middle fruit hit the table under it and broke the glass at like oh, 3 wow. a.m. at night. That doesn't happen often, but 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 in this festival, in the seven days festival, you would well while you're sleeping, you would hear a fruit or two flying at night, going <laughs> down at night. That's so. funny. Okay. I I want to um I want to talk more about like demographics numbers. So you said Samaritans at one point hit a low of a hundred and something. What year? Yeah, one hundred and forty-seven is what 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 this Western researcher um, calculated. Um, but there's even stories that it was even less than that. There was like eighty, but that's because that was in 1850, 1860. Some people say like that. But that was because they didn't made contact with another uh, Samaritan group that was alive that they didn't that they were not aware mm. of uh, that was in Gaza, um, and okay. and slowly the ones who are in Gaza kind of discovered there was a big like imagine imagine you're like there's a like uh, I don't know a hundred or fifty of a nation left and then they discover there's another hundred or another fifty that's a big thing that's what happened right. And they moved to uh, Annapolis. I'm not aware of the full story, but but I think it's a pretty backed backed story. Um, and they started living in uh, I think it was forty fa the family of forty living in Gaza, something like that. And they slowly uh, went to uh, live in the old city of Annapolis. But yeah, in terms of numbers, we we're growing now. We're 840. Was there like a, a conscious effort to increase numbers? Like, was there a conversation that said, look, we're, we're really small. We're um, mm. at risk of becoming an extinct people. We need to do something about it. There might have, actually, there might have. But I'm not aware of any. I mean, it might be something that is um, like the, you don't even have to say it because people realize it. You know, the people just automatically realize, hey, we're, you know, everyone... As you, when you get married, you just expect it to bring kids even because it's kind of like this um, role that you can help with, right, to, to kind of increase the community. We never had an official talk. Maybe we should, actually. Who knows? Um, and again, I, maybe there has been. I will, uh, that's a good question. I will ask about it. But as so far it's as not I know, something that's very much part of the culture today where you just see um, – where, where like there's a recognition that we need to have as many children as possible to increase our numbers. You're saying it's not like a, an, ex, an explicit part of like the culture. No, um, it's something that people are aware of. It's definitely something that people are aware of. It's like, oh, when, when a baby comes, everyone's like, oh, yeah, nice. You know, we're increasing. Although when a when baby girl comes even, we're more than happy because we have lack of, well, well, we used to have more men than women, like 3,000. Uh, a hundred years ago, it was up to like two, two men to each woman. Like, like how, did, how did that happen? Is there any theories as to how? I never read any theory, but I, but I think the reason is simple. So when you're down to only a hundred or 140, what guarantees that what's left of you is going to be 50% men and 50% women? Nothing guarantees that, right? You're just 140. 
it happened that this family and that family kind of like converted to other religions or maybe this family got killed in the war. And then now we have the families who have more men and the families who have more women. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's I, that's what I assume happened. Um, and eventually, if, like lucky for us today, it's kind of like catching up. So we have almost the same. So Right. Like the, the smaller the amount, the easier it is to have a discrepancy between populations. That's what I mean. Exactly. Right. Yes. Okay. Okay. That, that makes sense. Oh, yeah. And that's like, that's important for a lot of people to understand because I did, I do, I did see some comments on the internet a few times that, oh, that's because they don't let the, <laughs> the female babies live. I, I don't know how did they <laughs> come up with that. Uh, that's um, but no, that's, that's Sounds definitely almost like blood libel. Yeah. So. Wow. Okay. But like when a bo- baby boy also gets born, there's like a huge brit uh, milah, uh, you know, the circumcision ritual. Like everyone is invited for this morning uh, ritual and like food and like all the com- all the Americans are invited and yeah. Right. Um, so I do want to get to some questions. We have. Sure. 40 minutes left. And I already see by the chat that there's a lot of questions. Hmm. Um, also, well, I guess we'll start with, so chat, um, if you want to ask a good questions, now's the time. We'll try to get to as many as possible. Of course, we will prioritize super chats and, uh, I'm going to give a boot 50% of all super chats that come in. So we'll be splitting <laughs> them 50, 50. Um, may I regret setting this precedent? Perhaps, but we're going to go for it. With a friend, and I want him to have 50% of the super chats. Um, we have a BBS. A BBS is kind of like Reddit, but built on blockchain. So we have some community members asking questions there. I'm going to post a link to our BBS. Join us. It's kind of like Reddit, but you better. You just say blockchain? Yeah, it's like Reddit, but built on blockchain. You earn money for creating. For, for Interesting. Posting. Like yeah. crypto and stuff. Yeah, yeah, there's like a built-in tokenomics that reward um, content creators and the people who manage the actual BBS. So we have one for Sulha. Amazing. Yeah, pretty cool. Um, let's see. Well, Jordan asks, is there a God? Is there a what? Is there a God? <laughs> you, could, you could talk either about your personal belief or just, well, I guess Samaritan, we, we all believe in the same God according to Samaritans, Jews. Muslims mm-hmm. and Christians, that's something we all have in common, the same, the same one wow. God. I mean, we asked this question <laughs> on our podcast, Open Peace Podcast, I think two weeks ago. Like we, we, were ran, we ran out of articles to talk about in this segment where we chat about articles, and then I brought up this question. And um, honestly, it's, um, it's a hard question because you don't know what would be a satisfying answer. You could just write a whole book about it. But I'll start by what is God for the Samaritans, and then... Maybe I'll give you also what is God for, like, as my personal opinion. Um, I mean, there's, like, let's start with the Samaritans. So the Samaritans do believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They believe that when God created the universe, um, there was obviously nothing. And then there was light. And that light kind of made you differentiate between things. So that's consciousness. And um, and then he just, you know, like, brought people wisdom through prophets in like for them to be able to communicate with those people he brought them in flesh so that's like how the samaritan kind of story kind of describes god and he's like the all uh all encompassing all loving all uh powerful creator who uh omnipotent also right uh, so he's everywhere 
that's that's kind of like the concept of God in the Samaritanism. And and I like to also believe that I here's the thing. Have you ever saw how Jordan Peterson kind of believes in the Bible? Something like that? Because it's mm-hmm. a little bit I've interesting. Seen, I've just, seen some of his interpretations, yeah. Right. So there are a lot of people who don't realize that we don't have to take the Torah literally all the time. There are some stories who are just made like that so that people can understand some kind of truth about reality that otherwise if you read it literally you might get lost and um and even there might be some other like uh stories that should be of course taken literally to kind of go into the narrative of the uh, narrative of the story but here's how i really like to think about god okay um i think every human being has uh god in him okay that doesn't necessarily mean we are god i'm not saying that I believe there is something inside us that is might be this pure consciousness that is not exactly attached to anything. It's just pure awareness. It's so um, it's so pure that it's nothing, completely nothing. So I hope I'm not getting too philosophical, but that's that's what I really like to believe. And this pure like awareness is really what is talked about also, I believe, in the Torah, where it's like neshemat chaim, like the breath of God. So the breath of God might be this pure awareness mm. that you we're all blessed in. And this uh, pure awareness is also everywhere. I don't believe necessarily that there is a physical universe independent of us. I like to think that everything is consciousness, and our awareness brings that consciousness alive. So... It's really hard. To, I'm trying to put the most uh, valuable words in the, short, the shortest amount of time to keep up with the other questions. But that's, I think, I hope I gave a satisfying answer to some, you know, because like, like I said, you can write a whole book about it. I'm satisfied. And it looks like chat is, seems to be satisfied as well, for now at least. <laughs> sure. Um, so Mordechai is correcting me, saying we don't all believe in the same God. And he's even differentiating between different types of Jews who don't believe in the same God. Theology is by no means my area of expertise, being agnostic and all, but Mordechai, from, mm-hmm. th- I mean, this is new to me, from what I know that um, not only do all Jews, but all Christians, Muslims, and Samaritans, we believe in the same God, and then there's different, um, sure. many other interpretations, but the God is the same. But Mordechai, if you have an interesting like source, please share it in chat so we can all see, because I've never heard that before. Um, cool, some more questions. So Nomad also... Nomad on BBS is asking, put a bunch of questions, won't be able to get to all of them, unfortunately, but um, what's the process to convert to being, a, to being a Samaritan? Is there a conversion process? First of all, you should know we don't have a, um, we don't have missionaries, so we don't go around and invite people to become Samaritans. Um, however, because we want to increase our numbers and we want to do it you know, uh, in the safest way possible. Like we don't want to get married too close into the community. Of course, the closest you can marry inside the community, according to also the Torah rules also is your cousin. But even that we're pretty close to each other. A hundred years ago, remember we were 140. So we tried, we, and also one more point is that you are not considered a Samaritan from your mother. Um, It's more from both actually, from also from your father. As long as the child or as long as you follow uh, the Samaritan religion and practice what we how we practice the Samaritan religion, if your father or your mother, either one, 
are Samaritans, you qualify to be a Samaritan. So that's one thing. So that means that men in the community can marry women from outside the community. And and to point some examples out, we also take from the Torah also that uh, some prophets married non-Israelites. Moses married an Egyptian. And even after the commandments on Mount Sinai uh, happened also. So like Abraham married a non-Hebrew. So, And their, the line went from their son to their son. So Abraham brought Isaac, brought Jacob. So it, they're always from that, from the father. So it's different than Judaism, that it was from the mother. I'm not, I heard the story of when did it start in Judaism to be maternal instead of paternal, meaning from your mother or from your father. But but yeah, so why did I mention that? Because we married uh, women from outside the community and those women have to convert to become Samaritans. And the conversion process, there's no specific ritual that they have to do. There's no like, boom, congratulations, you're a Samaritan. It doesn't happen like that. There's no words you have to say or anything like that. So I believe that I would say the process of conversion is the actual living with the community for the first few months with your soon-to-be husband. I mean, you're not living in this in the same house or necessarily you're just living with the family because the here, rarely a person lives alone. So you're you're going to stay with your parents until you get married and then you leave. Uh, that's the norms here until now. So the conversion process is for about six the seven months of living with the community, keeping Shabbat, keeping the traditions, seeing how we, you know, make the purity rituals, make if, eat food, you know, like a Ukrainian or um, like a Christian who never kept Shabbat might find it hard not to touch her phone or their or his phone for 24 hours or something like that because we got used to it. Just, you know, overall Shabbat. And of course, the food thing might be a little bit, if you're a Samaritan and you went outside the country, you're pretty much uh, vegan or vegetarian because you can't eat meat that was not prepared by a Samaritan. Um, it needs to actually be prepared. It, it has to be prepared by a Samaritan because there are Wait, certain... Wait, does that mean slaughtered by a Samaritan or actually cooked by a Samaritan after the fact? Both. Just under, Both. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Is that? But Judaism... I believe is not like that, correct? Again, not my area of expertise, but I know there ne- the, the slaughtering process needs to be done by a special person. A prayer needs to be said. There, there's certain... Interesting. I didn't know that it should be prepared by a Jewish, maybe, yeah. By Jewish but but I, I don't know if the food actually, in a kosher restaurant, if the food needs to be, pre- if the meat needs to be prepared from a Jew. Can, mm-hmm. can one of our audience members provide clarity on that? Uh, that... Because that's quite interesting. I do know when Jew, religious Jews travel, they have trouble eating meat because there's just very little kosher meat around. Right. Um, so for yours, the distinction is, uh, yeah, I guess as a Samaritan, it's quite harder because there's no like industry of things that have like an o, OU, like kashrut symbol on them. And there's there's quite a, quite a, a bit fewer Samaritans around the world. Um, yeah, so you like- probably don't know. <laughs> Much yeah, about right. Samaritan kashrut. Is that what you call it, kashrut? Do, do you have a? Different we don't have we don't have that term in our like culture, but we but we use it to make people understand what we're talking about. It's okay. just that we say we even say haram because in the Arabic it just says haram. Right, it that means, would be the Arabic. Okay. Right, but we don't necessarily say halal. It's just that we can't eat. We can't eat. Um, but it just becomes a part of your life. It's not that big of a problem, really. You just. And even we don't right. have Samaritans living outside. So they just, like, you can travel outside for like a week, two, three. 
But then after that, longer than that, people will start asking questions. You know, what's happening? Is he becoming a Buddha or something? That you have to come back eventually to keep the community uh, engaged with you or like to, to, yeah. to keep your link alive with the community. So We have uh, another question here for Mariam Ahmed. Thanks for the question, Mariam. What is Abud's favorite Palestinian food? <laughs> uh, it's hard to choose one, actually. <laughs> um, uh, I, uh, if I had to choose one to eat every day, it would probably it probably be Mluchia. Do you know about that one? No. What is that? It's um, it's kind of a, a plant that um, they just call it Mluchia. I think in Hebrew it's also called Mluchia. It's a greenish plant, and they kind of make a soup from it. It's a soup, from, a chicken soup, but also a, like the plant. It's a greenish plant, and they make this huge. Um, like it's a big plate of potatoes and chicken and sweet potatoes. It's really delicious. Um, Luchia would be the answer. But oh, I also oh, like Michi. Wait. So, with lemon, yes. <laughs> no, it, it almost reminds me of a Yemenite dish. It might be. But is yeah. it, what's it called? I, I don't want to mess it up. Yemenites put something called Hawaiian. No, that's the stuff that smells like amba. Okay, so the closest would be spinach, sabanich, spinach. To oh, okay. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, not quite familiar. I'm not quite familiar with that. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, cool. yeah. Well, no when, when I come visit, point. you could take me for... for oh, you'd for love it. We eat it. My family eats it literally every Friday. So that's really? why I like Fridays. That's one of the few reasons why I like Fridays. Other than that, it's not my favorite day. <laughs> family time is great, yeah. Um, let's see. Adi, thanks for the question. Adi says, Abu, do you feel guilty that you live in the company of Palestinians and enjoy more rights than them? Hmm. Cool question. Um, how would that make me feel guilty? Let's see. So Palestinians aren't allowed to... Oh, okay. So he's kind of right. He's kind of right. I have a, a friend who never saw the sea. Literally, she lived here and she never, ever saw the sea. Um, and she did actually the the first time ever was like a two month ago. Um, she I think she got a permit or something wow. to see the sea. And I think it's too much to make a permit just to see the sea. I think it's it's not fair, you know. So I did feel guilty at that time because I saw how much she liked it, and I was like, whoa. I mean, I have access to the sea literally like forty minutes away, but she has to kind of all make all those preparations or find her way through, and that would make her anxious about it. So. To some points, yeah, I, I, I don't know if that's described as a guilt feeling or just feeling bad about it, but yeah, I feel I, 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 I think feel empathy for them. So I, I think that's an important clarification. People, the, the term guilty is a tricky one because generally, when you say you feel guilty, it's almost like acknowledging wrongdoing. When obviously True. you're not, you're yeah. not in any way responsible um, for for the different for for the privilege that you have. Um, yeah. You, you didn't do anything wrong to be more more privileged in that regard. So it's not Some guilty. Some people it's not would, guilty. It, it yeah. might be like guilty might be the word used when um, they might think that, hey, why did you accept the Israeli ID, right? That's what might may, may, maybe some people think. Like like some people would also say, why did you accept the Palestinian ID? Mm. Uh, and. Yeah, as, really, as you our, said, you, you guys are just acting in your best interest, which is something that all groups generally do, especially when their numbers it's, are, it's are that low. And also the connections with both people. But yeah, you yeah. know. Right. Okay. So yeah, describing it as empathy for the other, I, I like that framing. 
because uh, guilty does have a different connotation often. Sure. Yeah. Nir Rofe, thanks Nir for the question. What is your vision for peace? We touched on it briefly, but maybe you could just share what you would sure. like to see happen. Sure. Um, Nir, um, basically, it's one of the questions that I like. I get asked frequently, and it's also one of the toughest questions because I, I really don't know what's the one answer for that. There, there might be some practical things that we can do, but I'll start with this. I think that one steps that we can do is be careful how we raise the next generation. Because when someone grows up on a specific belief system or an ideology, it gets super hard to change the, change it when they get bigger, uh, when they get older. Uh, that means that if a Palestinian or an Israeli was taught in school that the other side are our enemies or he wasn't taught taught that directly but just like he came up with this um influence from the community and from school because mind you I, I learned in palestinian schools and i saw that they for example use the word occupation a lot i'm not saying whether they should or not i'm just saying that simply by the fact of using the word occupation you just grow up knowing that these are like the occupiers and you just have this belief system in you that these are like the enemies slowly so it becomes super hard to change when you're older so what I'm trying to say is we need to at least start with knowing how to raise our next generation in our education systems and and really like like bring them together with Israelis somehow some way like maybe we have we could have some schools that can like have both Israelis and Palestinian together that would be awesome if that could happen because they would grow together and you'd have like I mean that doesn't sound realistic to some people but that's that would be one thing that would help a lot interacting is I think a huge step because I've seen Palestinians and Israelis who were kind of like going at each other at some point. Um, the short story is like this: we had this cultural night in a, in this uh, workshop in a, in a for a nonprofit organization, and every group, like the Palestinian group, talked about their culture, and the Israeli group talked about the culture, and they mentioned their cities, and then the Palestinian side mentioned um, the Israeli. Uh, city or I mean that today you call it Israeli which is the I think it was Haifa or something so oh wait so it's the basically the Palestinians said that Yaffa is a Palestinian city so they talked about it as the Palestinian city so the Israelis they were like whoa guys this is not a Palestinian city anymore this is an Israeli city so that what that what made the Israeli four people or something like that kind of like go mad about it. Like, why Why do you say that? So suddenly we have the two groups going at each other. But what I realized was when they were in front of each other, even though they were like going at each other and like electricity was between them. But after a few hours, I swear to God, Adar, you should see them. They were like different at all with each other. They were like super, really good friends and it felt like really authentic, you know? So despite them talking about that conflict, it's almost like this energy was just like filtered out and you know, okay, just go at each other and say what you feel. And you said, you said this and you say that, but maybe just, we need more interaction face to face and maybe we could do it on hard regime here. You know, both mm. people feel so. Um, so these well, are my two points, but, but yeah, yeah no, yeah. it's not an easy, and we have a, by the way, you can check out our uh, podcast, the open peace podcast that I started with um, like my two, three good friends. Uh, and we bring guests really. In the description. 
Right. We talk about these subjects. We we're, we bring people from different sides, and we're going to bring. It's going to be really interesting. We we even have had Adar on it, so check it out. We're and maybe over there we'll discover what's the the real solution. Who knows? Yeah. Amen. Well, I'm going to come visit you. If there's one thing this conversation convinced me of, it's that I'm I'm coming to visit. Awesome. We got some clarity from uh, the observant Jews in in the audience. They said that. Here, we'll pick, pull up Daniel's. Daniel, good to see you here. Adar, Jew has to slaughter and also do much of the post-slaughter ritual like salting, covering mm-hmm. blood if it's chicken, etc. But cooking the meal can be done by a gentle Gentile under Jewish supervision. Gentile being oh, okay. yeah. yeah. So similar, but it seems like a little bit stricter uh, for Samaritans that it actually needs to be cooked. Um, um, I think that... Or supervision is, like, is fine. If it's, he's a worker with you, if he works for you, okay. like in the restaurant, I believe there are exceptions because you taught him. The important thing is you teach him how to do and what to do because there's like rules for the, what, how to deal with the blood, how to deal with like meat, cooked meat, something like that. Just make sure that he knows these rules. Yeah. Okay. Like, for example, uh, what one, one good example would be not to mix meat with milk. You don't want a chef that doesn't know that, you know. Then he would use the tools that you were used for things that contained milk to cook things that contain or that has meat. So we can't mix those two. Great. Um, I just let, let's get a little bit dramatic. We've been so peaceful the whole time. Maybe we can get a little <laughs> dramatic. Sure. So it's actually funny. So Adi asked the question. Hold on. Adi asked a question about if you feel guilty, which I think is, you know, is a very good and interesting question. By the way, Adi, I, from our conversation, he, he's a right of center Israeli. So he's not, he's not a left winger by, by any means, mm-hmm. right of center, but really engaged in, in getting to know the other side. And then we have Aksay, who I guess is new here. Hi, Aksay. Good to have you here. Aksay responds Adid, do you feel guilty for forcing Jews and Samaritans under dimitude third-class status for 14 centuries? So I guess Axie is confusing Adid for a, for a Jewish Zionist who's just empathetic towards the other side. But the reason I'm, I'm pulling this up is because it's interesting. It's Adid just really asked a question um, that shows his empathy as a human. <laughs> it says nothing about what he views of the conflict, whether he voted for Meretz or Bibi or, or someone else. It's literally just showing empathy and it's, it's not surprising because we've been doing this a lot, but showing a little bit of empathy for the other side, how it triggers this like visceral reaction. It's like, how Mm -hmm. dare them try to show the Palestinian humanity. Mm -hmm. Often people showing the Palestinian cause are also anti-Israel. So there's kind of like a, a heuristic there. The second he saw empathy for Palestinians, he, he recognizes that as like an anti-Israel stance, but yeah, Axie, whoever else is here for the first time, you need to break out of that paradigm. We're doing something different here. We have left-wingers, we have right-wingers, we have people on all sides of the spectrum. The one commonality between us is that we care about the other side. So you're going to hear different narratives on this channel. Um, right. don't, don't get offended because somebody cares about the Palestinians. Um, and, you know, Palestinians coming here for the first time shouldn't get offended when they see a Palestinian who actually cares about Israelis. That's what we do on this channel. Cool. Um, yeah, here, Adiv incorrect saying I'm a right-wing Zionist. So my, my um, yeah, 
Uh, yeah, D, it was a misunderstanding. I agree with you. It just, it's it's a sign of how people uh, assume things based off like a question that really didn't say much. Okay, more, more, more. Okay, this is an interesting one. Jordan, are non-Samaritans allowed to purchase property on Mount Gerizim? Yeah, yeah, they're, there's definitely, they're, they're definitely allowed because, you know, if we don't, first of all, if, if you can buy the land, no one can say no. And usually we buy them from, I mean, we bought them from the Palestinians. The ones who were here, they were like owned by Palestinians. So we bought them from there. So I don't think Palestinians would mind selling. I mean, they might mind selling to Israelis, but you know the point. If they don't mind, it's, you know, there's nothing that, like uh makes them not buy those lands so they can definitely buy lands although we don't have that that many non-samaritan neighbors we have one big family it's a father of with three uh wives he brought 20 children he's a pretty good neighbor uh and we have like uh i think four or five families at the entry of the of the village but other than that the village on mount gerizim is pretty much samaritans and we wouldn't mind really neighbors coming in from Nablus or from the other side. Cool. Really. We have actually two fin- Finnish people that started living in the community. Really? Yeah, they're like documented like uh, reporters mm. in their 50s, I believe, something like that. Interesting. Okay. Uh, we have a question from fan favorite Starhopper. Good to see you here, Starhopper. So I, I guess the... He, he started pressed if you convert to another religion, are you su- still Samaritan? So I guess this is similar to how Jews are both a people, but also a religion. So I don't, mm. I don't believe in the Jewish religion. I'm still a Jew. Do Samaritans have something similar to that? Um, so the, in the Samaritans, you have to take into account something very important, which is the community. And when I say community, you have to understand that what makes us, for example, not able to live outside the community is probably because of the community, not because of the religion. So the religion never said that you can't live outside, but when you start living outside and you forget that there's a community and you don't come back for like the Passover ceremony or the Shabbats, at least for one Shabbat every few weeks, and we have a lot of festivals where you have to be on Mount Gerizim, you will lose your respect kind of in the community. And that is totally up to you. If you feel like you don't want to keep, if you feel like you want to keep Samaritanism by your heart, and if you feel like you won't feel bad about it, it's up to you. The idea is that it's hard to practice Samaritan religion without the community. That's something that is, I don't think you can argue about that because today we have the Shabbat, which we, which is like seven hours of prayer, which is really hard to do by yourself, really. Um, right. Right. Um, and other festivals, really. So, Wait, so, so you, yeah, sorry. So, go ahead. So, yeah, so like just continuing the question of if you convert to another religion, are you still a Samaritan? I think you define that, not the community, because the community by them, you, you have left the community. You need to prove that you are keeping the traditions, and you can't prove it if you're staying together alone. So they would consider you as like a as a non-Samaritan, and eventually, if you leave the community and you don't come here and practice what you should come to do on our cuisine. Mm-hmm. 
So it's a but, tricky question. So, so technically, there is a way to be an atheist Samaritan if you're community oriented, if you're still part of the community, and and um, you know. Well, that's a question I get rituals, asked. Sometimes. You don't actually believe. Yeah, yeah, that's a question I get asked sometimes. Do we have uh, like seculars in the community? Here's the thing. So imagine a community of Orthodox uh, Jewish people living in, I don't know, like Nebrak or something. Nebrak, right? Um, if one goes out on the street on Shabbat using his phone, like if a Haredi Jew uh, goes out, out on Shabbat and uses his phone, you th don't you think that would be problematic, right? Although he might be secular by himself, but he, at least he have to keep the, the traditions, the Shabbat, at least to everyone. So everyone is here is a keeper uh, for 100%. No one eats non-kosher, like at least well, for more. Everyone sees, right? So the collective, all of us are keepers, definitely. So we don't really have seculars, you can say. We probably do. You never know what's inside the person, but everyone so, else above the surface shows their Okay, in. so that, that's a clear distinction uh, with Judaism, I would say. Okay. Right, because Jews, you, you could have like no connection whatsoever to the religion, Right, and perhaps this is something that uh, developed in the diaspora. Right, it might very much be a result mm. of um, diaspora living. I mean, but... it still didn't happen. There might be some, like we did have seven people, seven or eight, who left the community in the last hundred years. So they seven maybe or eight they... in a hundred years. Yeah, is that a lot? No, maybe that's not. like nothing. You guys have a great retention rate. You could say we do, we do. That's not yeah. a lot, right? Um, but. Here's the thing, you know, those one of those seven people or eight people, I would imagine that they would tell other people, hey, you know, I'm a Samaritan, but like, I just left right, the they community. Would still they would still say that, right? right? Yeah. Yep, or they would sense. just say they I, I converted, so who knows? Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. We have a question from Jeremy, and this is kind of a repeat question. We've seen a bunch. Do Palestinians view Samaritans as Jews? Ah, good question. So... There has been some people who are calling us the Palestinian Jews, right? Maybe you heard about it even. Mm -hmm. um, this is um, a good question. It's also sometimes misleading because the word Jewish, like I said, it has its own roots. The word Jewish comes from the tribe of Judah, right? So um, if you want to go from tr tr tribal-wise, we're not from the tribe of Judah. So we don't call ourselves Jewish. You know, in the religion, we just call ourselves the sons of Israel. Um, the Bnei Israel. We don't say that the Jewish people aren't Bnei Israel. That's a different thing. We just don't use the word Jewish because we're not from the tribe of Judah. So it's almost like calling, um, I don't know, like uh, what could be a good example? It's almost like calling a an American. Oh, I can't find a good example. But it's just like we don't use the word Jewish because we're not from the tribe of Judah. That's the main reason. However, we are... Palestinian Jews, if you want to call us like Jewish, in terms of the ones who have the Torah, the ones maybe, who believe in... Maybe it would be equivalent to calling like a Brazilian American because they're from South America. Right. <laughs> that's that's actually a close one. Yeah. yeah. That's, um, that's pretty close. And you see, the thing is like, it really depends on if you believe um, that if, we, if you mean by Jewish, the ones who keep the Torah, the ones who believe in the story of the Exodus and all that thing, then yeah, people don't know. Here's the thing. People don't know that there is a, another version of the Israelites religion 
that exist. They would say, for example, you would ask, for example, are the Karaim, you know, the Karaim uh, community? You would, maybe you heard about it, right? Yeah, they, they follow the five books, right? True, they Literally. only follow the five doors, the five books of, uh, yeah. of Moses. Uh, although their version is also slightly different than the Samaritan Torah. Mm. But then again, are they Jewish? You would say yes, you would say no. But to, like what I'm trying to say is people don't know that there is another version of the Jewish religion right. out there like Samaritans. So Well, I found that to be shocking in my research that it's like, and, and, and I read that a lot of the stories are the same, but the interpretation is different. So when it's written in the Jewish um, Torah about building the temple in Jerusalem, we saw that mm-hmm. as as following God's wish. And then the Samaritan mm-hmm. also r- reports of the building of the temple in Jerusalem, but you saw it as a mistake that that the Judean Jews were making at the time. Right, right, right. You're yeah. right. So, yeah, and it brings up interesting question. Interesting questions. Uh, by the way, uh, like this small story, I would like to mention uh, that might be interesting to the viewers uh, to see how we're really kind of falling between two, two, uh, the two con- the conflict and kind of like the two sides. Because my name is Abdallah Cohen. You would assume, like, wait, he's a is he a Muslim or is he Jewish? Like Abdallah is obviously an Arabic name. Cohen is a Jewish name. But one time, my name really kind of saved me. Uh, because there's an Israeli, two Israeli soldiers who saw me going out of a Palestinian taxi at night, going to an Israeli uh, area, and they assumed immediately I'm co- going to do some kind of a some kind of a terrorist uh, operation. Because like, who does that at night, 9 p.m. and at, especially at the time where there was like this, uh, almost called the Intifada of the Knife, right? Like in 2013, yeah, the or something Intifada, like that. yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So I did that, and that soldier really almost. Let's say he almost shot me because he was like very, he was shouting. I will never forget his eyes. The first time ever a, a gun pointed at me that close. Wow. And I was shouting, bro, relax. Everything's okay. Um, I'm a Samaritan. Anishamoni. Now, it's, the look on his face obviously showed he never heard this word before. And he started to ask his friend, like, what, what does that, what does that mean? His friend at least removed the, the gun away and told me, listen, just show me your IDs. And at that time, I did mm-hmm. not have the Israeli ID. I only had the Palestinian ID, but you can still read it in Hebrew, Abdallah Cohen, which probably confused him even more. Right. But, you know, but like that's the story, you know, and uh, and he let me go after like 15 minutes of conversation. Sorry to hear you uh, went through that. I imagine that could be traumatizing. It was traumatizing, definitely. I like every time I crossed that road, I remember that <laughs> that incident. But yeah. at the same time, it, it motivated me to talk about the community and let the Israelis know more about us. So thank you for letting me do that. For for sure. I mean, it's been a great pleasure. It's something uh, Israelis and many Jews just aren't aren't aware of. Um, right. I had a very similar experience to you. It was when I first heard of Open Peace Podcast, or maybe when you joined uh, Telegram. I'm like, mm. uh, Abdullah Abud Cohen didn't make sense. Uh, Abud mm. Arab Cohen right. Jew. Like, who is this guy? What what's he all about? And then I I heard about the Samaritans, and from there I've just right. been like researching and looking into it so yeah it's, it's been a process and yeah I, I think there's a lot of education that that still has to yeah be there's done. not there's really not enough about us on in the schools in school books no there's like this small did you know one time i saw small did you know box that there is some, some group that called themselves samaritans who believe like, that's it we deserve a lesson we should sign up a petition for that 
Yeah, for sure. Mandatory uh, in, in schools. Um, you have time for a few more questions? Sure. Cool. So Daniel Edelstein goes, how is Arabic of, how is the Arabic of Samaritans in Hulon? Ah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's not as good as ours, but they, I would say we speak Hebrew more than, better than they speak uh, Arabic. That's for sure. But that's because we go to work in Israel more than they, I mean, they don't work in Palestinian cities. Um, however, because we are always in contact with them, they come to the mountain a lot because there's like festivals that you can only do in Mount Gerizim here. So we interact with them sometimes in Arabic and Naturally, yeah. also, they they just find a way. Some of them, I assume, have stronger Arabic than others, but overall, they they understand it pretty well. So okay. they, cool. they would get along more than the average Israeli. Right, say. and they, they learn at home? Is that is that what's happening? No, they don't really learn it officially at home, but they might like watch some Palestinian shows here and there, hear mm. some Palestinian music or like Arabic music, or they might just... Like I said, I think the most important factor is that they're in contact with us and we speak right, first. Right. So when they come here, we sometimes speak Arabic and force them to speak Arabic, and sometimes it's the opposite way around. Cool. Brothers, sisters, family. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting ties because, again, just in a like geographical location, not so far away, but on separate sides of borders. So it's interesting to see developmental differences and how you still stay in touch and support one another. True. Uh, Gonzo Moods asks, how would you describe your relationship with the Druze, with the Druze population? Cool. Um, I don't think there is a specific relationship, um, but it's, I like, I think it would be like as good as like, any Israelis we don't have a specific one I don't have I think I did oh I did have a, a student who was from the Druze community maybe even two um, that I taught for a, a couple months uh, English and he taught me a little bit about their traditions uh, but other than that there is no specific relationship it would be like as good as uh, both sides we're very we're really friendly with all sides really so cool um Maybe we'll take this last question. Daniel Edelstein asks, how many times a day Samaritans are meant to pray and at what times? I think Daniel's trying to see how it aligns with uh, Jewish practice. Sure. Um, we have both. We have morning and evening prayers. So both are like around, say, 10 minutes, 5 to 10 minutes. But those are not mandatory, you would say, it, because the ones who who are mandatory are the Shabbat ones. So mm. I'm not the one who decides if they're mandatory or not. I'm just saying usually the younger generation doesn't practice the morning and evening prayers. But on Shabbat, I think that's because they believe that they do enough on Shabbat because on Shabbat, seven hours of prayer and everyone has to come. There's so, seven hours of prayer every Shabbat? Yeah, but they're split wow. uh, around. They're like scattered around the, the 24 hours. So there's one hour at the entry of Shabbat where we go um, and just um, turn off everything in the house, just keep a few things on, like the bathroom and like maybe the like the living room a little bit, like a small light, and then go to the, and head to the synagogue. Uh, men only pray in the synagogue and women pray at home, although in festivals women also join us. And um, 
We go back after that one hour and sit with the family and just have some tea and cakes. We don't have the kiddush, by the way. So we don't have the, this ceremony of the kiddush with the wine. Mm, so we just sit, eat some delicious food, chat about the weekend, what's happening, who's getting married, who's getting engaged, who's traveling. You know, it's just you talk about all of the all listening. That's why it's hard to keep secrets in this community. And that's why, you know, some privacy-wise, it can be a little bit challenging. Um, because of these talks on Shabbat, probably. But we have also three hours of uh, prayer from 3 a.m. in the morning. So that's like Saturday morning. You go 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And funny enough, last uh, last Saturday, my grand- I slept at my grandparents' house, and he woke me up. And then I was like, I'm sure the, the, the prayer didn't start. You know, He woke me up, I think, with like a little bit of like half an hour before he didn't see the, the hour. It didn't see the clock. My grandfather make a, made a small mistake. And I went there and I didn't see anyone. Like literally at 3 a.m. It was dark at night. Like, um, so 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Uh, we have this prayer for three wow. hours. And mind you that it's not like you're not focusing for three hours. And you don't have to kind of like not talk. You can just relax. The chants are amazing. They're very meditative. They make you feel good. Um, they're there's also the, the like you can go home and like just like maybe if you need the bathroom or drink something and just, just come back it just become becomes part of your life really uh and by the time you the, the prayer finishes we have from six to seven the parashat shavua so like the the week the weekly portion of the torah is read by the family uh one by one so everyone has their own portion so it kind of goes in a circle and we, then we have the beautiful uh, Samaritan uh, breakfast. I say Samaritan breakfast because it's like that's what most Samaritans eat, which is tahini. If you like tahini, by the way, do check out tahini harbracha. <laughs> um, like wait, is that all you eat? Just, just oh, no, it's tahini mixed with things. So you have like tahini with um, like eggplants or avocado or uh, sweet potatoes or potato, like different, like maybe nine dishes or something like that with the Samaritan arak. Oh, oh. Uh, Oh, with Arak. Well, yeah, 7 a.m. Arak. Have you ever tried it? <laughs> it's crazy, but we sleep after for like of five hours. This morning. Not, not bragging. <laughs> it's crazy, not, but when you have... Of it, but yeah, you know. Yeah. But when you wake up at 3 a.m., it's almost like it's not morning That's true. Yet, you know? That's true. And we sleep five or four hours after that. It's pretty the best nap of the, so of the three, week. So three to six and then a nice nap. And then 12 a.m. is like two hours. Then go back to the family, sit with the family. Everyone's chatting. No one's on their phones. That's the what's kind of brings us back to the old days. <coughs> Excuse me. And then we have half an hour at the exit of Shabbat. So that's how Shabbat finishes. Amazing. I'm gonna I'm gonna come experience that. You're more than welcome, Adar, for sure. It's funny. <laughs> we'll prepare uh, some tahini. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I love tahini. I'm. I guess I'll eat it in the morning if I'm having like uh, what we call an Israeli breakfast, which is just a bunch of different like salads and uh, me- hummus, maybe like small, okay. less so, so hummus. I do know that many Middle Eastern countries will have like hummus full uh, mm. for breakfast. We do that less, but we'll have like, um, it's not uncommon to have like eggs. But then also like a lot of different smaller salads that you'll have in like the, probably the, the salat katsut, which is known abroad often as Israeli salad or Arabic salad, which is what we're more likely to call it here, salat aravi or salat katsut. Um, you'll eat that with tahini. So yeah, we do. Well, yeah, you should we really try avocado with tahini if you're looking for a delicious and you know, very healthy. I actually am against that. 
I'm against really? avocado mix. Yeah, I'll tell you why. <laughs> okay. Because avocado with salt on a piece of bread. I mean, you could add a tomato. Tomato's pretty neutral, neutral, and the, the acid of the tomato adds something. Okay. But avocado with salt is one of the best tasting things imaginable. Like it's mind blowingly amazing. Okay. And I feel like tahina dilutes the flavor of the avocado. So I have done mm. that mix before, but I, I always tell myself, like, you know what? I don't think it tastes better than just avocado. But when you but, mixed it, did it look like avocado with tahini? Or did it look like a green hummus? Because you have to mix it. Oh, you're saying actually blend them together. You actually blend them together, ah, so you have a green hummus. Really, hmm. it's really okay. Good. Try that. Look, because I tried what you mean. It wasn't that good, but when you mix them and crush them when together, you mix it. Interesting. Lemon and salt, and then you okay. you'll be satisfied. We have a green tahina that is done with like a lot of cilantro and sometimes other herbs. That's what our green tahina is. But you're saying actually mix the two. And have it be like a creamy. Okay, I'll, I'll do it. Avocado. Sure. It's, it's not avocado season now, but in a few months, I'll let you know how. Uh, awesome. How it went. I'm excited for that. We love sushi yeah. here in Samaritans, by the way. So sushi. We love it here. So sushi is like interesting because it's obviously not not a regional food. And uh, 10, 15 years ago in Israel, at least, it wasn't hard. It was hard to find sushi, and definitely not good sushi. Now, from what I read, Israel has the most sushi per capita, Oof, second, really? second most sushi per capita after Japan. Wow, really? Yeah. Per capita, so, but that's still a lot. Wow. Per capita, yeah. We, we really took it. Uh, we <laughs> went to town with it. And recently, I've seen a trend in Thai food, actually. I've seen a lot of Thai restaurants Thai food. open up. Yeah. Um, so we had a, something funny happen in... in uh, in chat, we have a uh, shout out to Joseph Cohen from Israel Advocacy Mo- Movement. So he he's here in the chat. His name mm. is Joseph Cohen. So a Palestinian friend of ours. Oh yeah, I was on, on his uh, channel once. Joseph. Oh, you were on his. So they're asking if you if you two are related, both being Cohens. I think there that if you want to go genetically, we are probably related because <clears throat> the Samaritan Cohens were thought once that they were like not really Cohens. But after a DNA study, which you can look, by the way, on Google, you can find it. Search for Samaritan Cohen gene, something like that. You'll find it. I think it's uh, either J1 or E1B1, something like that. And it turned out that Samaritan Cohens are related to the Cohens around the world. Hmm. Uh, that's really interesting, right? Uh, you can check out the study and check it out and just come out with your own conclusions. But we probably might be related, sure. <laughs> Way back when, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um. Cool. I think that's it in terms of questions. We are a little bit over our hour and a half time. No worries. If there's any like more that are waiting for him, I'm I'm here. No, I think we're. Let's see. You know, one of the hardest things is is uh, listening to what you're saying and also finding uh, questions at the same time. I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. I'm. Um, if there's any anything I missed, I think it would be um, like in terms of like showing the Samaritan Hebrew a little bit. I think that's would worth it. Samaritan ancient Hebrew. Just check it out and just or show you like really important uh, things. I should I think people should check right. If you allow me to share my screen. Yeah, yeah, sure. Let's do it, and then <laughs> so, we can give you some final final words.
words, final thoughts? So this is the Samaritan Hebrew. I'm trying to how normally it, it should increase by itself, but okay, so do you see it? Is it big enough? Oops, sorry. Let's go and check into this one. There we go. So this is Samaritan Hebrew. This is Aleph beat Gimel. You can read how we pronounce them. So Aleph in Hebrew would say Aleph. And beat is also beat. Bet, sorry, is beat. And what's interesting is you can see the difference here between the Samaritan Hebrew and under it the Jewish Hebrew, known as also Assyrian Hebrew. Right. Samaritan alphabet is also known as Paleo Hebrew. And you can see like some words are still the same a little bit, like Sheen is kind of like the Samar- like the, the Jewish Sheen. By the way, Sheen means teeth. So you can see it resembles Shin. human teeth a little Shinai. bit, right? Shinai. Shinai. Or, or for example, in. What, what does Ein mean in Hebrew? Right? I. It's an I. So you can see it uh. also resembles an I here. Uh. Although the Assyrian or the Jewish Hebrew stopped using that version of it. Um, we have, for example, an, another uh, example would be Rosh. What does Rosh mean? Rish, sorry. We say Rish, but it also means Rosh in Hebrew or in ancient Hebrew, which is head. So you can see it resembles like the head over here, right? Ah. And if we want to say in in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, the earth in Samaritan Hebrew, well, in Jewish Hebrew, we would say Barashid Bara Elohim et Shamayim Aretz. In Samaritan Hebrew, we would say Barashit Bara Eluim et Shamim with Aretz. And um, one more thing I think is also worth mentioning. We believe we have the oldest Torah scroll in the world. Not book, but scroll. And we believe it was written by the third high priest in the Holy Land. His name was Abisha. So if you search for Samaritan Abisha scroll, I believe you can find a photo of it. Um, Yeah, that's it. So that's the scroll. And we believe it's written on an animal parchment. And it was passed down from generation to generation. It's not in obviously in the best condition. Some people would assume like there's no way that it would survive 3,000 years old. That's a good argument, I think. We don't necessarily believe that there are the same pages since 3,000 years because maybe every time there was a paper that was, you know, uh, that just got disintegrated, we just replaced that same paper. But, But we only bring it out three times each year and we only keep it in... Uh, the safe. So only bring it out of the safe three times a year. And here's the the, the thing. Um, a lot of people got to know about it. And about 40, 50 years ago, some people had the idea of, oh, it would be a good auction you know, item. I think that's what they probably thought. And they tried to steal it from the safe. Lucky for us, they couldn't uh, break into the safe, kind of thieves or something. They couldn't break, in, break into the safe, but they could steal two of our oldest uh, Torah scrolls. One is about 600 years old and was about 800 years old and we were contacted also we contacted them to somehow i think they contacted us they tried to sell it for us imagine that like they stole it and then they start they kind of proposed to buy it for us uh sell sell it for us and i think they or like asked for about a million dollars and the debates are still going how to get them back and there was a museum in america who even proposed to buy it for us under one condition that they keep it um, in the museum and only bring it to us three times a year, which is like in the festivals. But we could So it's like uh, them saying, we'll buy it. We keep it, but technically it's yours. 
yeah, you know, it's, it's just not, it was not accepted. You can see here also the Samaritan women come to pray on this, uh, on this Abisha scroll. So like they just take the blessings from it. It's the, like the most valuable item we have. So. Wow. Fascinating. And as you can see, it looks kind of also pretty similar to the Samar to the Jewish, uh, like version of the Torah of, but this is used only for blessings, not for reading. So the Chazan, the Cantor would open it up and then lift it right and left, but not free. We don't read from it usually. So, and by the way, do you know what a mezuzah, if you, I mean, of course you know what a mezuzah is, but did you ever see a Samaritan mezuzah? No. Um, like, you know, in the Jewish traditions, they have it in the wooden, wooden, small wooden, like kind of box, right? On the end. Yeah, I can maybe house. get one. Hold on. Right. So, sure. This is a Jewish mezuzah. Right. Yeah. Just, uh, and then there's a scroll in here. Right, inside it. And it usually yeah. contains the Shema, right? The hero Israel. So this is how the Samaritan mezuzah looks like. It's pretty much engraved on a piece of stone and put on the entry of the house. So you can like have any kind of verse from the Torah you want. And this is put on the above the door or next mm. to the door. Is that just one per house or? Sorry? Or is it next to, is there something like that? It's like a plaque. Is There's a plaque in each door, uh, above each door, yeah, or just exactly. one on the house? Uh, above each door. Above one oh. of, of the entry of the door of the house, sorry. So above the entry of the house. So like just the door of the house. You oh. can put it on the above the door, right, on the left. So it would be interesting to look into how this became the Jewish mezuzah. This could also be a diaspora creation because you didn't want to, maybe you wanted to be a little more discreet in your belief when we True. were in the diaspora. So we did something subtle. True. Instead of so, like, announcing So that, that you don't show your identity as much. Right. This is also very interesting, by the way. This is a piece, uh, like here on the right, this is a small piece of the of what was found in the Qumran scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls. So uh, we know that there are some differences between the Samaritan and the Jewish Torah. And it was believed uh, for a lot of years that the Samaritan Torah was just another, uh, like just kind of like evolved from the Masoretic text. Um, that was what, what was believed. But then we, we discovered, like the scientists and like researchers discovered in Qumran a scroll which had a version of the Samaritan uh, Torah in uh, in the as as, as old as two thousand years old, two thousand four hundred years years old, I believe, or maybe even a little bit less than that. But you can search for the Samaritan, uh, maybe Samaritan version of the Torah in the Dead Sea Scrolls, something like that. Um, it's a beautiful uh, piece of like they found it in infrared. So the verse says, "And you shall put the you shall build an altar on Mount Gerizim." And um, what happened is really that they found that this is today not found in the Masoretic text. So, right. so that's the thing. So they didn't know that the Samaritan Torah was that old, at least. So this is also written in Assyrian Hebrew, by the way. But it contains what the Samaritan Ten Commandments contains today and not the Masoretic text. So that's something you could also yeah. check out. It, isn't it? Isn't it right that what they think to be the case is there wasn't one original text and then deviations of that text, but there were different similar texts 
by mm-hmm. different different groups of Israelites that slowly right yeah you have it. the Masoretic you have the Dead Sea Scrolls you have the Qumrans like you know you have the Samaritan version of it there's even I believe there is another version of of it I forgot what's the name of it but you're right in that regards I I heard about it here's the high priest about 100 years ago we have a high priest today is my grandfather we choose the high priest based on age the oldest of the Kohen family that lives on Mount Gerizim so if the, maybe wait, uh, he, maybe he's, you'll he's come your back. grandfather today he's my grandfather yes wow um but that doesn't mean I'm in line I mean I am in line but not because he's my grandfather I'm in line simply because I'm a Kohen that lives on high Gerizim so maybe in like 40 50 years I'll be the high priest you like, <laughs> okay who knows know. just based if I'm if I will live in it long enough don't don't forget me when you get your pri- uh, high priest oh no 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 problem I'll, I'll yeah, give you okay. the priestly <laughs> priestly blessing priestly blessings so yeah these are the things that I wanted to share I guess there's probably more but I invite everyone to come to Mount Gerizim have a look for yourself you you love this place um it's pretty safe to come here a lot of people ask if it's not so it's pretty safe. Well, place. I'm gonna I'm gonna come visit you. Maybe we'll even do a live stream together in person. I think that could be cool. Oh, cool idea, yeah, for sure. I, I think we've just only scratched the surface. There, there's there are some more questions. A bunch of them are whole new can of worms that I don't know if we want to get into now. But we we could just agree to set up another session and take a deep dive into some new topics that we didn't touch on today. I would love to. I would love to for sure. Awesome. Uh, so, although I do watch- want to see, uh, like, want to mention this question: it's in, What does he mean, uh, Ari? Here, what do you mean by how does he feel to be a blue blood? <laughs> what does that mean? I'm not sure. Ari Garinesh, a boot. How does it feel to be a blue blue? <laughs> yeah, blue blood. Okay, I'm trying to see. Is that is? Does he mean Israeli or does he mean like uh, ethnically? I don't know. I guess we'll find out. We could we we could wait. Um, okay. Sure. Friends, if you want, you can get in touch with Abud. Uh, his contact information is in the description. You can also find a link to the Open Peace podcast. That's his podcast. Uh, very, the, Follow us there. So him sorry. and some friends who have also been on the show in the past um, are doing awesome work. They're also trying to have Israelis and Palestinians engage in conversation. Their mission is similar to ours, so I very much suggest that you Get that link and follow, follow them. Yeah, and check uh, out also if you want to see the documentary. Search for a boot Cohen on uh, YouTube. There's a 50 Blue minute documentary. You can watch. Yeah, yeah. Let's drop. Let, let's even put a link in the chat. Um, have a link to that if anyone wants to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll I'll send it in a second here. Okay. So a blue blood uh, just means royalty. So yeah, a boot Cohen is a blue blood. Ah. Sure. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, Here, I searched it. Oh, that's so quick. Okay, it's like uh, it's from our Open Peace podcast. Uh, did I search? Yeah, but we wanted to put your your YouTube video, which is like a documentary. That's, that's the documentary. Yeah, that's the documentary. Oh, that's here the I link found for it. The documentary. I found it. Here, hold on. Boom. Okay. Um, Cool. We're going to, friends watching, if you want to do an after party in the lounge on Discord, we could do that. Um, Abud, I don't know if if you want to join or if your time is up. Today, you mean? Um, Yeah, I'll have to be in a place now, but 
I would love to another time. I'm sure I'm sure Thursday evenings that's when we do our after party. So anyone who wants to do an after party, join our Discord. I just shared a link on the left hand side. It says lounge, click lounge, and you'll be connected. Uh and Abud, it was so great having you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I had a blast. Yeah, I, d- I do plan on coming to visit sometime soon. So uh, you're more than welcome. I'll make sure the tahini is ready. <laughs> yeah, I want that avocado cleaner. Yep, very much so. Um, yeah, and uh, any final words you want to leave? You want to leave our audience with? Um, I haven't thought of any final words, but I would say that, like, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I I love questions, and I think that we. You know, like some people might think that we are biased toward this group or that group. I assure you, we really authentically want peace between the two nations just for the simple fact that we love both nations and we have, we care about both friends. We ha- have really good friends from both sides. So we genuinely want to be a bridge of peace between both sides. So, um, yeah, help us do that by, uh, you know, maybe spread the story of the Samaritans and, uh, you know, like show the people how, you know, as Samaritans who were like considered Israelites, we're getting along super well with both nations. Why can't everyone do that? So. Amen, brother. Very well Amen. said. Thank you. Signing out, friends. Until next time. Bye-bye.